90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, exhausted. Not as as exhausted as my class because I gave them a four-hour final last night inadvertently, but that's okay. Ooh, four-hour final. That's brutal. <laughs> it was really brutal. <laughs> uh, it didn't take most people four hours. Um, it took a few four hours, but it was it was a good two and a half hour test that I'd never I'd never made a test for this class because usually I have oral exams, which I know we've talked about, and so I made a written exam this time, <laughs> and apparently I made it of skosh too long. <laughs> So now you get to figure out which you like grading more or hate grading more, yeah. the written or the oral exams. I think I already know the answer. <laughs> like, I carry them around with me all day today, and I'm like, I've got to get to these. Got to get to these soon. <laughs> you can literally feel the weight of your workload yes, exactly. <laughs> on your shoulders when you're oh. carrying around this huge bag of paperwork exactly. from class. I did see a lot of my students today, though, and they did not try to assassinate me. So I guess they didn't think they just said it was long. It wasn't ridiculously hard. So there's that. (laughs) Uh, What about you? (laughs) Oh, I've been staying really busy. I'm actually working on my entry to the Hackaday Prize. Oh, awesome. I'm very excited about this, actually. Yeah, so... I have a bunch of other projects going on, so I'm not exactly sure how far I'm going to get by the time (laughs) the deadline is, but we'll see. Uh, The idea is I want to make a time-lapse camera that will always point into the wind so you can get time-lapse of like storms and fronts as they go by and see interesting meteorological phenomena without having to have... I mean, yeah, you could use a 360 camera but then you have to pan around and look for the interesting stuff. I just want a really simple, you can watch a video of the day, and if there's any interesting weather, you're going to see it. I think that's super cool. Um, I think having watched, like, you know, gravity waves go by and stuff like that, I think it's really neat because you don't really and, get a sense of it, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. And instead of just putting a camera on a wind vane, of course, you know, it's on a stepper motor that moves it. And my ideal is to have a wind vane and some temperature pressure humidity sensors on this. That data will overlay on the movie. So you can see like pressure trends and temperature trends as the front goes by. And you'll just go to a website. Uh Now that is, you know, I have to design the the wind vane and the radiation shield and 3d print those. And there's a decent amount of code to get the web part of it stood up. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to get there in a month, (laughs) Uh, especially with everything else going on. But what I do have right now is a raspberry Pi that goes out and hits the open weather map API and gets the wind direction for my zip code and points the camera. Ah, that's pretty good. So it's a start. Uh, I, I don't have any movies yet, but soon. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is exciting. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm curious to see where it goes and if I can get something that is reasonable or, you know, if it turns out that sometimes you want to be pointing into the wind, sometimes you want to be pointing out of the wind for inflow and outflow. I Yeah, I don't know. We'll just mm-hmm. have to see how it works. Um, And I know we talked about this off, off of here before, um, how cool this would be for schools, like K through 12 schools to use too. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you see 
if you see the dust kick up in front of a front and you can watch the pressure and temperature drop as the front goes by all in a few second movie to me that's a great educational tool right exactly i think that's super great and i mean you can talk about meteorology all you want but you know until you actually see it just like rocks it seems like until you actually go see it in action sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense so i think this is an excellent tool to speed up some of these you know some of these slower sort of processes that you might not totally grasp exactly so I've been working on that and also going through some of our feedback. We've had a lot of show topic suggestions, everything from fulgurites to water witching. Yes, I am excited about both of these things. Um, Me as well. Uh, <laughs> we actually, I don't even know if you know this, we actually had the wells at our field camp water witched. Interesting. Yeah, but we'll talk about that when we talk about the show. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and also some... Uh, one email that was self-titled shameless sticker request <laughs> some interesting things as well. So definitely, you know, keep, keep the emails coming in, keep requesting stickers, keep requesting show topics. But we also had a revisit to remember when we talked about the Prince Rupert's drops. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Destin released another video showing shooting them with larger caliber weapons until he was eventually able to destroy one. And you actually see a fascinating phenomena of tribal luminescence when this breaks. Ooh, really? Yeah, and because it's a glass filament, it acts like an optical fiber. So the light generated from the fracture of the glass makes the whole thing light up. Oh, that's awesome. So not it's only really cool. do you finally get to destroy this thing, but it goes out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> Yeah, and for fun, at the end of the video, he also smashes lifesavers with a hammer. (laughs) And in high speed, you can actually see the individual electrical arcs going across the surface. It's amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Because who hasn't done that? I mean, but high-speed cameras, man. That's where it's at. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even have to get to Fun Paper Friday for me to talk about high-speed cameras I know, exactly. It's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, for this week's show topic, there are no high-speed cameras involved. In fact, we need a mega time-lapse camera. Exactly. And I was was just thinking, uh, also, speaking of things that you can't really see as well, that's kind of uh, where we're going today, right? (laughs) Yes. So I thought it would be fun to do a show, and I can't believe we haven't done one yet, on the structure of Earth. Uh, I really, when you sent me this, I thought, no, we've definitely done this before, right? (laughs) Because yes, how have we not done a journey to the center of the earth show? Seems kind (laughs) of silly. And we're not going to do it exhaustively. In fact, I almost broke this up into each layer being a show and we could still do that (laughs) at some point. I have a feeling we absolutely will do that at some point. And this will be another show where we can't keep ourselves on track because there's so much to say. But this is just an overview show of our structure from where we're standing all the way down to the middle. (laughs) And I will warn you, as we like to classify things, as Shannon always points out in science... (laughs) We classify the Earth based on things like phase transitions, so chemical transitions, or mechanical property transitions. Right. And so there are sort of different layering schemes, 
and they overlap and have things in common, and it can get really confusing. <laughs> so this is a question that always goes on my intro geology test is I have two slices of pie, right? And I talk about this exact thing. So on the left slice, they have to order the structure of the earth, you know, from from where we're standing to the middle in terms of the um, compositional structure. And then on the right side, they have to do the rheological structure, the how does it behave. So just like John just said, there's kind of those actually don't line up at all. Right. <laughs> Which makes and, it a little hard to visualize sometimes, I think. Well, and, you know, everybody learns in science class, generally, I think, that, well, there's crust, mantle, and core. Right. Which is sort of true. <laughs> it's uh, true enough. <laughs> and and you see the mantle always as this big glowing orange liquidy looking thing, which is not at all right. In yeah. fact, there are studies out there arguing that it should be shown as a green mass. I don't like those studies at all. That's creepy. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you, th you think about what minerals you, yeah, I know. you find down there. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I've got pieces of them outside. I get it, but still... <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we're used to seeing, and it's uh, it's a good start. It is. It's relatively okay. So how does the Earth break down chemically? Mm-hmm. Lots of stuff here, and that's um, that's kind of, well, I would say that's kind of the easy part. But so we've got a lot of different things concentrated in the crust versus concentrated in the mantle versus concentrated in the core. I mean, the crust... That one's pretty easy because you can actually walk outside and sample it, right? <laughs> and it's a lot of silica, a lot of aluminum, lots of oxygen. Right. And so the crust is the, I would say, the outer layer in the chemical makeup. Mm -hmm. And then below that, you would have the mantle, mm -hmm. which we split into upper and lower. Mm -hmm. And then the outer core and then the inner core. Right. And as you get, just like anything, as you go towards the core, your elements get heavier and heavier, right? Because everyone knows we have a metal core, right? So iron and nickel down there. And then you've got some in-between uh, different chemical things in the mantle, like magnesium and some heavier elements than the silica and aluminum that we have at the crust. Right. But mechanically, which is where I more think of earth materials. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then... You're talking about the lithosphere, the asthenosphere, then mesospheric mantle, which is a nice meteorological throwback. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, the outer core, and then the inner core. So outer core and inner core are common between these. Right. Uh, pretty much everything else is a different dividing line. Yep. <laughs> and when we talk about where these dividing lines are in terms of their depth or their thickness or their age or their makeup... Uh, don't, you know, get out your ledger book and keep track of these numbers because they won't add up. <laughs> yes. Um, this is one of those lies that we tell in intro geology classes, right? Because you have to, unfortunately, you have to test people, right? So we make these, these numbers for real, but they're not for real. There's always transitions and weird interminglings throughout all of them. So exactly like John well, said, don't add And, you know, up. I mean... <laughs> We have a we have a global velocity model that represents the Earth as a homogeneous sphere on on the whole. 
Okay. But yeah. <laughs> locally, there are such big transitions that, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thickness of the crust can vary by uh, several hundred percent. <laughs> depending yes. on where you are on the planet. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so all these numbers are going to be really round. <laughs> like the Earth. Um, but not like the Earth because we're not actually round at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so let's start out with the crust, which if you were to think about driving your car to the center of the planet, the crust is about the half-hour drive. Which is crazy. That's that's really nothing. Um <laughs> But just like John said, you have to remember that it's dependent on where you're at. And the crust is thinner uh, over the under the oceans, not over the oceans, thinner under the oceans. And then it is thicker, especially uh, in the continents, especially in places like where you have big mountains and stuff. So that makes sense. So it's about six to 10 kilometers under the oceans and, you know, 30 to 50 kilometers or those of you that want miles. 30 miles, 18 to 30 miles thick under the continents. Right. And so, you know, the oceanic crust, that translates to a little under four miles, generally, roughly. So So right there, you already see we have this huge disparity. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. And and yeah, I mean, we're we're talking about how far, you know, I drive to work every morning. I, I, that's the distance that the crust is (laughs) down to the mantle, which is incredible because that's where everything that we know and that we've been able to directly study takes place. It's in that 30 minute drive. I love that you translated this into the drives because even, you know, we talk about this every day. I teach plate tectonics constantly. And I was like, Whoa, what? (laughs) Like he's wrong. No, he's totally right. That's crazy. (laughs) And you know, the crust, it's very silica rich, like you mentioned, and it's pretty young, pretty much. I'm going to say the vast majority of the crust is less than 100 million years old, which is like yesterday. Right. And I mean, the oceans, we don't have any ocean that's older than the Jurassic. So that crust is constantly getting recycled. We've done plate tectonics before, so we've talked about some of those processes. Um, So the ocean crust especially is very young. Right. And I mean, okay, there are a few mineral grains that have been dated back to about (laughs) 4.4 billion years years yeah and so we know that there's been solid rock for at least that long Mm -hmm. on the planet but these are very isolated cases and in fact you're close to some very old uh some very old rock there in oklahoma with the tishomingo granite which is several billion years old yep yep it's just well i mean it's a couple so that is pretty pretty um unusual and these ones that are you know around four billion those are very very rare to be even find yeah, and we're generally there talking about the way I understand it anyway, recycled mineral grains. Right, right, right. So like Not the big oldest chunks of rock. Correct. <laughs> the oldest chunks of rock are on the, you know, three point six, three point eight billion year uh range. So these are like little zircons and stuff like this that are the really old things. Right. Yep. So Okay. Not a lot of those. So So that's the crust in <laughs> a nutshell. <laughs> If you will, um, <laughs> this is so painful. There's, so, I mean, all everything I do is crustal processes, and we're just going to go on. I mean, that was like two minutes, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I know, but it's it is the thinnest <gasps> layers. I mean, you think about, so uh, sad. yeah, it's. <laughs> 
it is pretty sad and it's kind of scary to think that mm-hmm. everything else from here on down that we're going to talk about has been remotely observed generally via seismology. Yeah, yeah. So the rest of the show is totally made up and you can just, you know, believe what you will, Hey, I hey, guess. no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so let's keep driving. Where do we go next? <laughs> so after our 30 minutes, we're entering the mantle. Now, when you're hearing people talk about the lithosphere, remember, we're going to go back to that mechanical mm-hmm. nomenclature for a second. They're talking about the crust and the very uppermost part of the mantle. Right. Yeah. And so the lithosphere is a very strong region of rock. Right. So how this I is, describe... This is not a ductily flowing zone. Right. Exactly. So I was going to ask, so this is how I describe it. It's just, you know, this is the more rigid zone. So compositionally... The crust and the upper mantle are a lot different, but mechanically, they're very brittle. It's like the um, if you poured chocolate syrup and let it get hard on top of ice cream, that's how I describe it. It's that crunchy outer okay. shell. That's that's fair, yeah. It's the solid mm-hmm. rocky outer shell. Yep. And like you said, there's more iron and magnesium, going back to the chemical composition, mm-hmm. as we go down. We get this differentiation. Uh, and the mantle, contrary to... Every cartoon you've ever seen and the idea that mantle spews up out of volcanoes, nowhere is the mantle liquid. What? I mean, okay. Okay. You can have melt. You can have little melt pockets, but the earth's mantle is not this big liquid thing. Yeah. That's an unfortunate misconception. Um because, well, yes, exactly. So this is, I always go to food analogies. I feel like people know food a lot better than they know rocks. <laughs> so, you know, peanut buttery-ish, is that fair to say? Like hot peanut butter? I, that's probably fair if, okay, so. With pockets of molten Let's talk about it in terms of viscosity. <laughs> so. <laughs> you ask a silly question, you get a silly answer, Shannon. Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> so, hey, do you remember the pitch drop experiment? Uh, a little bit. So there's this idea that, you know, pitch seems like a solid, but it's actually a very viscous material. Mm-hmm. And so they have this experiment where you can watch a pitch drop form and fall off. And it takes some absurd number of years. I'll link it in the show notes <laughs> to do this. But it happens on a human time scale. Like in your tenure as a professor at a university, you would probably see a couple of these fall. Excellent. Uh, that is 10 to the 7th Pascal seconds viscosity. <laughs> if the units don't mean anything, that's okay. Just think orders of magnitude here. 10 to the 7th. <laughs> the mantle is anywhere between 10 to the 21st and 10 to the 24th. Oh. So not even liquidy peanut butter. <laughs> no, it's, it's viscous, but it's ductile. So at long time scales, you can actually get convection, which is one of the driving mechanisms for plate tectonics. You get this thermal overturning, but it's not liquid. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I understand convection. See, and this is the same thing. This is why John and I both get so excited because, you know, these are the same physical processes that happen in meteorology, but just on this ridiculously long time scale. Exactly. And so, as you can imagine, in up in the upper part of the mantle, where it's stronger, you're not getting these effects nearly so much. Uh, but as you go down into the more ductile upper and lower mantle, you get into the asthenosphere, which literally translated means weak sphere. Huh. Interesting. I never knew that. 
Yeah. That makes so, sense. So the mantle itself, surprising number here to me, is about 84% of the Earth's volume and about 68% of the Earth's mass. Mm-hmm. See, and this is where the igneous uh, petrologists, you know, get really excited because most of the Earth is igneous rock, but it's all this stuff we never see. So who cares, right? <laughs> <laughs> For being that big, still, if you were going to drive it, it's about 30 hours. So about 2,800 kilometers or 1,700 miles. This is always so shocking to me. I show this graph that has, you know, the wedge of from core to crust, and it's superimposed on North America. And this is always really surprising because you think the center of the earth, that's crazy. But I've made 30-hour drives before, <laughs> you know? Oh, like, yeah. No big deal, <laughs> right? <laughs> So, hmm, not bad. And there's all these fun phase transitions that occur uh, that lead to discontinuities in seismic velocity, like around 410 and 660 kilometers. And they have great uh, names, too. The 410 and the 660 discontinuity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, oh, the, the zone where things transition from brittle to ductile, we also call that the... Yeah, the transition zone. A. If it fits. Uh. <laughs> you know, we can do so much better. <laughs> this is crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, so those mineral phases um, that cause these differences in seismic velocity, you can go back to our mineral show if you haven't listened to that and see why. Because this is really interesting. And there's a lot of um, experimental work that goes on to under understanding these pressure temperature gradients and how these minerals change at depth. Oh, yes. And... You know, the dip, the contrast in physical properties as you go down from the mantle into the outer core, you, you hit this thing called the D double prime layer. So D <laughs> and then two ticks after it. Again, really? <laughs> hey, named by a seismologist. Obviously. Right? So uh, <sighs> what's really amazing here is by the time you get down to the, the bottom of the mantle. You know, seismic velocity is increasing through the mantle. It has a couple of big jumps at the at the 410 and the 660. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to the bottom, you're going about 14 kilometers a second P-wave velocity. Okay. So, so a few times faster than you are at the Earth's surface here. Okay. That drops to 8 kilometers a second at the core mantle boundary. Wow. Nearly in half. And the S-wave velocity goes from 7 kilometers a second to zero. Mm, now, this is really important. So that is a larger velocity contrast than the velocity contrast between rock and air at the Earth's surface. That's awesome. That's unbelievable. So That's there are, I mean, and we, we've <laughs> talked about plate tectonics occurring on the core before. Yeah. In mm -hmm. one of our Fun Paper Fridays. We had a Fun Paper about it, yeah. This is why. God, that was one of our first ones. That's, that's impressive. It was. It was a long time ago. Yeah, it was. <laughs> that was an impressive pullback. Uh, <laughs> um, this is... So where does the mesospheric mantle... Because I don't talk about the mesospheric mantle very much. I usually just stick to lithosphere and asthenosphere. So before we keep going, explain what that... Oh. What that mechanical difference is. If, if you want to split hairs, that's the, the 660, where okay. you can say things are truly ductile. Okay. All right. So not that huge a deal. No. Okay. No, it's just an, a different naming of the subdivision 
you know, seismologist versus somebody else naming it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's awesome. But one of these keys here in understanding the composition of the Earth below us is that this S waves velocity goes from seven kilometers per second to nothing because of something very important that happens when we actually reach the outer core, right? Right. So now, you know, we've driven our, our 30 and a half hours. We're 1,800 miles below the surface. And all of a sudden, we hit fluid. <laughs> I think I saw this in the core, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> there, it, shear waves don't propagate in fluid because fluids can't sustain a shearing stress. Just compressional. So like sound waves, which are compressional waves, can travel in water. They travel very well in water, for example. Mm -hmm. But if you if you try to do a shear wave in water, it's just no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it can't happen. And so we actually see no shear wave propagation in the outer core because it is this big 1,400-mile thick, which is a 23-hour drive, uh, <laughs> ring of liquid iron and nickel. That's so cool to even visualize. So below your feet, if you were to drive for 50 hours, there is a 1,400 mile thick layer of iron and nickel that is up to 14,000 degrees Fahrenheit swirling around. I mean, that's why I have a job, basically. So It's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, what I hate about when you show these pictures of the Earth is I always feel like the core doesn't get, the outer and inner core doesn't get a really fair shake because it always seems like they're these tiny little things, but that's not true. It's 1,400 miles thick. That's a considerable chunk of uh, the percentage of Earth's radius. It's, it's true. And, you know, so I, I threw out the upper bound temperature of 1,400 Fahrenheit, uh, it's a range, like everything else, as you go down. So 3,000 to 8,000 K, which is uh, 2,700 to not quite 8,000 C. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so Toasty. 5 to 14,000 Fahrenheit. Toasty. <laughs> That's awesome. We'll hit all the temperature units. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. I love that you put Kelvin in there, just in case. <laughs> well, that's, you know, the only reasonable thing to talk about these yeah, temperatures yeah, in. Yeah, it's true. Um, and so when you talk about, um, you know, the the liquid mantle that we see that we always think the whole mantle is liquid because we see lava and stuff like that, that's like 1,800 to 2,500 Celsius. Right. So rock melt, you yeah. know, your traditional mafic melt. Uh, there are carbonate melts that are much cooler than that. Right. Right. Exactly. But that's and, weird stuff. So. Yeah. This is hot. Mm -hmm. Right. And. Not only is it hot, liquid, metal, it's rotating, which, like I said, is what gives me a job because this is what we think creates Earth's geomagnetic dynamo and had, thus creating our magnetic field. Right. So if you think about thermal convection happening because we're losing heat at the top, we have hotter in the center, so you're going to get these convection cells, and then it's rotating, so our good friend the Coriolis force comes into play. Yay. And you get these really complicated flow patterns that are dynamic and maybe even chaotic. Uh, definitely chaotic. Um, these are some of the most fun talks to go sit in on. Mostly I don't understand a lot of it because this is some very serious 
uh, fluid dynamics and it's fluid dynamics of metal, which is even weirder. Um, <laughs> but it always, well, never ceases to amaze me how little we can model this. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, not at all. Like, you know, our Earth's magnetic field fluctuates. It doesn't always approximate a dipole. We always just put that picture of a north-south magnet in in there and be like, that's it. Well, I mean, upwards of 10% of our field doesn't behave that way. And we can't really figure out why. So this is... This is my favorite part of Earth because it's so very interesting that we still don't know so much about the uh, the physics and the dynamics that are occurring in this 1,400 mile thick molten metal piece of the core. And it probably also has something to do with why the magnetic field reverses periodically. Right. And we have very little understanding of that. Yeah, zero. Like they run, they run all kinds of, you know, experiments using molten metals to try to, to try to approximate even the patterns of our magnetic reversals and they can't do it. It's very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, then it just gets crazier because remember, as we're going down, not only is temperature increasing, but pressure is also increasing. So we're at absolutely absurd pressures. We're talking many, many gigapascals here. Yeah, definitely crushing. <laughs> yes. and So so if so, you have your adamantium spaceship or whatever, right? <laughs> unobtainium, adamantium. Unobtainium, yeah, in, I in the core. I confused, yeah. <laughs> unobtainium. Uh, so then as you go down, you're going to eventually get to about 3,200 miles or 5,100 kilometers. And you're going to find the inner core, which is an abrupt contrast to the outer core. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you wouldn't want to speed through this one because you're just gonna go clang, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all of a sudden, S waves appear again. So, so no we know that metal. it's uh, we know it's solid like. <laughs> uh, solid might be a generous word. <laughs> it can support shear stresses, uh, and this was actually. Believe it or not, only discovered in 1936. I'm actually surprised it was that long ago. Really? Mm-hmm. So it, th- the story behind it is actually pretty cool. It's uh, Inge Lehman mm-hmm. that discovered it. And I, I think we have to go into that, how the whole discovery process worked. But the big headline here is that we get S-waves again, and... There's some crazy phase changes that iron undergoes at these pressures. <laughs> uh, and this stuff still isn't well understood, right? No, this is all off in model land. Now. Yeah, great. Okay. <laughs> uh, we, we know roughly, I mean, we have an idea of what the seismic velocity is. Um, mm-hmm. We know roughly how big it is. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the state of knowledge. <laughs> As far as I know, uh, of the uh, inner core. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I mean, so, yeah, of course, there's a lot of modeling and things that happen, but there's even been some models that suggest that under this kind of pressure, you get such a crystal structure of iron that it's one single crystal. Uh, see? And then when you think the core is a dumb movie, maybe it's not right. so dumb after all. <laughs> That's all I have and to say. The amazing thing to me is this is the diameter 
so not the radius, but the diameter of the inner core, is about 1,500 miles. So to drive from the outer inner core boundary to the center of the Earth is only a 12 and a half hour drive. Easy. Yeah, I mean, that's how far I have to drive home now. See, uh, <laughs> this is so crazy. And I mean, we're talking about uh, 66 hours overall. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Hmm. Uh, I do want to point out that uh, Inga Lehman was um, a female seismologist, and she was Danish and geophysicist. And so that was probably, um, I can't imagine the things she would have to try to convince people of when she modeled this stuff, right? I mean, it's a weird concept to begin with. Um, but she did a lot of pioneering work in seismology. Yeah. I mean, like we've talked about, all of these revolutionary earth science ideas are generally considered absurd. Yeah. Uh, it's it's unimaginable what she probably had to go through to try to get this idea accepted. No kidding. And so that's where um, you hear, you know, these crazy scientific things that get thrown out and you really can't, you can't dismiss a lot of them right away. You know, they're things that you need to think about <laughs> because. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because at one time that's ridiculous. And now stuff like plate tectonics in general, totally well accepted. So. Yeah, definitely. So it's, uh, th- that's our, really rush tour to the center <laughs> of the earth. And I, I think it's amazing, one, at the scale, both the fact that it's very big, but that's something we can conceptualize relatively easily. Yes. And all of the complicated processes that happen and how these fractionations happened, how we got all the heavy minerals at the center, uh, it's a process called planetary differentiation, which is, again, a whole nother show. Oh, but yeah. if you think about throwing a bunch of stuff of different density that's liquid into a pool, you can imagine it's going to separate out. Exactly. Well, we talk a lot about this when we talk about trying to figure out how old the Earth is. And a lot of the very first experiments having to do with that were differentiation experiments and they were all wrong (laughs) mostly because (laughs) you know people were using homogenous things like glass like how long does it take a glass sphere to cool um this is stuff that lord kelvin did and you know and that's not what the earth is right because we have these really vast density differences from the inner to the outer chemical constituents well and so there's there's the density driven differentiation and then the thermal that Kelvin did is fascinating. So a a gross misestimation of the Earth's age Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there was no idea at the time that there are radioactive minerals that are a giant heat flux in the Earth. So we're losing heat at the surface, of course. But the fact that we have all this radioactivity, all this decay going on, heating up the inside... Well, that's something that was not known at the time. and Right, exactly. There's basically f- over f- 400 years or so of experiments before Rutherford came along and said, hey, hey there's these uh, meteorites that are really radioactive. Uh, maybe we've got some of that in our in our planet, too, to sort of refute all those ridiculous things, which we'll definitely have to talk about because some of these are pretty amazing experiments to try to figure out how old the Earth is. Oh, yes. And, you know, this is, we're just talking about the earth here, but the planetary (laughs) geologists are really lucky because they can look at planets in different states 
Planets that are tectonically dead, planets that are very active, planets that are younger, planets that are older, planets that can do all of these different things and give us different snapshots into the planetary formation and life cycle process. Yep, exactly. And that, that, that helps a lot, too, as opposed to just sitting in your laboratory and cooling some spheres that look like Earth and <laughs> trying to figure out how old we are. <laughs> exactly. And if you want to know some more about the differentiation of our moon... Uh, I'll link in the show notes. You can go back and listen to Brad Jolliffe when he joined us and talked about lunar structure. It's a whole other story that's fascinating. Yes, I agree. That was one of my favorite interviews. Yes. (laughs) So, Man, I can't believe we we did that in so short a time. I'm very impressed with us for keeping our mouths shut on all the cool things we wanted to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) It was very hard. (laughs) Well... I am pretty excited about this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Me too. This is awesome. So (laughs) we got this gem from Alicia at Embedded.fm, and it is the coolest thing ever. This was not what I was expecting when you said she sent in a paper, but it's super neat. And so we've linked in. It's in Discover Magazine, um, and it's talking about these megatunnels dug by South American megafauna. And, yeah, that's exactly it. So extinct big mammals that made these huge tunnels and how we figured out what what these tunnels were in the first place, which is a really great sort of... Hmm, that's interesting. Science moment. <laughs> exactly. And I will say the whole time I was reading this, all I could think was the phrase charismatic megafauna. I know. Uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Thank you, flyover country. For yes. <laughs> so. Thanks, Shane. And these look very charismatic because these tunnels are huge. <laughs> yeah. So these are a, a Brazilian geological survey geologist uh, saw this saw this giant cave looking tunnel thing and said that looks unnatural but couldn't get a hold of the landowner and said well i'm going to come back and look at that someday and eventually did and found something that totally stumped him yeah um and so when we say unnatural i mean caves are natural things but these are tunnels they look like they've been crafted into the rock um and you know if you're looking at the the online article about this you'll see immediately why we say it looks unnatural so it's very smooth all around it it looks like a human might have blasted this out right i mean they're very very smooth walls but it gets creepier than that because as you go back in some of these tunnels there's claw marks everywhere too yeah and it kind of reminded me of did you ever see the uh the the original generation star trek episode where they find silicon-based life and these (laughs) things like make tunnels through rocks with acids on their bodies of course i did (laughs) it looks like those tunnels it does (laughs) links in the show notes um (laughs) (laughs) that's even creepier to think of these charismatic megafauna with acid acid fur (laughs) so the, the question here is what made these because in the pictures you can see people standing in them you know we're talking three to six feet in diameter and long hundreds of feet long with networks of tunnels oh yes um so when we say megafauna i mean if you've been to your local um natural history museum maybe you've seen some of these things so these are things that were around not very long ago 
And things like giant armadillos or especially these big ground sloths are one of the things that they think could be responsible. Well, not a singular ground sloth, but a bunch of ground sloths over several generations for some of these tunnels. Because like John said, I mean, there's several. There's one burrow they found that was over 3,000 feet long. That's crazy. Yeah. And well, so they said that the uh, the giant armadillo is the largest living relative which i did not know there were 90 pound armadillos on this planet yeah like that are that are extant yes i was freaked out by that uh. <laughs> we have an armadillo that lives in our front yard and we can't get him to go away and he is very scary so a 90 I mean, pound it, armadillo <laughs> yeah and these are are bigger yeah not and even cool <laughs> you see i mean there's a picture with somebody standing by the claw marks it's very clear what happened here yeah and then there's a figure from one of their papers that i thought was fascinating about they noticed in the top of the tunnel there was this uh how would you call it a like a scalloped structure scallop scalloped. structure that's yeah. that's the word yes mm-hmm. yep and so each scallop is that thing digging out for a while at one big go right right so the giant sloth digs for a while, cleans out the material, and then takes a break. Yeah. You know, has a coffee and... <laughs> Eats a giant armadillo. Then goes back to work. <laughs> What's amazing to me is, and I hadn't even think about this, but if you're digging all this material out, it obviously has to get out of the tunnel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that means on that biggest tunnel, that material was being moved for thousands of feet out yeah. and away from the entrance. Exactly. Uh, this is... I get... This is what you have kids for, right? So they can tote out your <laughs> your tunnel so trash. Take <laughs> your tunnel, yeah. Uh, I mean, these are like these claw marks are crazy. But like I said, if you've seen these um, these skeletons, oh, there's a bunch. These claw marks are crazy. But I mean, if you've seen these skeletons, they have huge claws. Like the digging makes total sense. Um, one of the questions was that I found really interesting. Because these megafauna lived all over. So why we not figured these big paleo burrows out before? Yeah. And I mean, they're not just finding an isolated one or two. They said they went past a construction site and found a lot of them. In fact, they're trying to catalog all of these. They're finding so many. Right. I mean, which totally, you know, makes sense. It's like this thing and you've never seen it. And and then all of a sudden, once you become cognizant of it, you see it everywhere, which is essentially what they're saying is happening, but we're not finding them in North America, even though we had giant ground sloths and giant armadillos. Um, And they think it probably has something to do with the right type of soil and rock that was around. Right. I mean, you have to be able to to easily dig out wherever you live. So that probably makes a difference. Uh, Also, they add these questions about, well, this is much bigger and deeper and larger than would be needed for simple shelter and protection from predators so what's exactly going on with the logic here Mm -hmm. and i think the logic is clearly that there are mole men that live (laughs) that lived (laughs) back then that were inhabiting these right (laughs) yeah and so i mean we've seen burrows of different creatures before they're generally very small and preserved sometimes even microscopic and preserved uh this is just a totally different scale yes Uh uh-huh i would never have dreamed that such a thing exists and still exists. I mean, these, okay, they're not old yeah. in geology standards. 
That is true. They're fairly young. Because these things were, you know, Ice Age creatures and stuff. So they haven't been gone all that long. Um, but if you right. haven't been so to So thousands local... of years old. Right, exactly. But I mean, if you haven't been to your local museum, there's a pretty good picture of these giant sloths. And I mean, some of them were as big as elephants. So, scary. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty incredible. Okay, yeah. So, uh, actually just found the number in the article. Eight to 10,000 years is where they date most of these tunnels. Right. So, you know, last Ice Age animals. That, that makes sense. Coming out of the last Ice Age animals. And then it got too hot, and then we took over. <laughs> so, there we go. So, thanks, Alicia, for that fun paper. That is a pretty good one that I definitely would not have found. Yeah, no, that's super neat. We look in much weirder places than <laughs> than that to find yeah, papers, I mean, We so. actually talked about geology in a fun paper. It's exactly. No cameras, no, no models, nothing. Just these cool burrows filled with ridiculously scary giant armadillos <laughs> exactly and you know talking about fun paper friday i actually wanted to point out that jake over at we martians just released an episode talking about eskers on mars because he got really interested in eskers after listening to us talk about them uh-huh. with kaya we've, we've infected him <laughs> and he actually has francis butcher uh, who we met at LPSC, the Lunar Planetary Science Convention, on talking about her work on Martian eskers. And she was an author on one of the fun papers that we did talking about Martian eskers. That's awesome. So if you want to make a full circle fun paper connection, exactly. go check out the most recent We Martians episode. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. <laughs> but if you have a suggestion for a fun paper or show topic, anything you'd like to tell us, or if you just want to plead for stickers, we would love to hear from you. <laughs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, keep those emails coming. We definitely enjoy them. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I'm at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.